open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And we return to our study in Matthew's Gospel today, and we're going to look at the eighth and the ninth miracles that Jesus performed after he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you'll think back with me for several months, we ended our study of the Sermon on the Mount in September. And right after Jesus had preached that powerful sermon, he came down from the mountain and the crowds of people began to gather around him. Uh, Immediately upon coming down, he was confronted by a person who was a leper. And this man fell down before Jesus and he worshipped him and he asked Jesus to heal him of his disease. And Jesus did heal him. And that was the beginning of a series of miracles that we find here in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 that are intended for the specific purpose of proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king who had been promised to Israel for thousands of years. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is that great manifesto of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus preached that sermon, and it was all about the high demands of living in God's kingdom. And the conclusion of that sermon is that no person is fit to live in the kingdom of God except by faith in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus had finished that sermon, the people noted what a gifted teacher that he was and how his teachings were so much different from what they were used to. The Bible tells us that he spoke as one who had authority. And really it means that he spoke as one who had authority in himself, not authority that had been granted by someone else. He didn't quote from Jewish rabbis. He didn't draw on years of rabbinical instruction. Instead, he spoke as one who was the author and the originator of the words. He spoke with the authority of God because he is God. And when he came down from the mountain, those crowds had heard the words, they recognized the authority, and they also saw that he refuted the misinterpretations of their religious leaders. Their leaders were the scribes and the Pharisees. They had twisted the scriptures And so what Jesus was doing in that sermon was calling those leaders out and letting the people know that he was right and they were wrong. And so the people are now wondering, why should we believe him? Why should we accept what Jesus says? Where where is the proof in what he says? And so thus you have... Matthew recording nine specific miracles that prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is truly the Messiah King who has come into the world. So we've been through seven of those miracles and interspersed between the retelling of these different things that Jesus did, we find different teachings of Jesus. For instance, he taught on the difficulties and the high demands of discipleship, the high cost of following him. He also said that he came into this world to call sinners to repentance. Then he spoke about the exclusivity of the gospel. The gospel of Christ stands alone. You can't mix anything with it. Salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. No other way that a person is ever going to get to heaven except by Jesus Christ. And now we come to the last two miracles that indicate the power uh, of Christ. And these are the miracles of giving sight to the blind and speech to the dumb. Now, if you'll look with me, please, in Matthew chapter 9, stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him 
crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word today. Speak to our hearts through the message. Help us to deliver this in the way that you'd have us to bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All of the miracles that Matthew records here are a calculated approach to give proof to the kingship of Christ. Now, there are many miracles that you'll read about as you go through Scripture, and Matthew uh, does not record all of them. He doesn't mention some of the ones that are mentioned in other gospel accounts. For example, John uh, tells us about Jesus turning water into wine, but, but Matthew doesn't say anything about that miracle. By reading the Scriptures, we understand that there were thousands of miracles that Jesus did, and we're not told every miracle that was done. And the ones that Matthew has picked out for us that he's chosen here are are not here because these are his favorite ones. These are not like watching David Letterman at night and getting the top ten miracles that Jesus did. But rather what Jesus or what Matthew is doing here is his purpose is to establish the authority of Christ's kingship. And so there are a limited number of miracles that are recorded. And as we've noted, each of those miracles, each group of these miracles, speaks to some aspect of life in the coming kingdom of Christ. And the Bible does teach us that Christ is going to return to this earth. Uh, He will establish a kingdom here. And it shows us that in that kingdom there will be no sickness. And so we find here in Matthew that Jesus healed many people of their sicknesses. In the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes, there, uh, the earth will, be, ca- will ca- be caused to give forth its fruits. There will be an abundance of, of crops and there will be no hunger. And so thus we have a miracle of Jesus calming the storm on the sea. And that tells us that Jesus has power over nature. And then in his kingdom, Christ is going to rule over death. And so we have miracles that relate to death, both physical death and spiritual death. In the last message, we talked about Jairus' daughter, the little girl that had died, physical death. And Jesus was able to raise her from that physical death. And in the course of studying that, there's also the miracle of the woman that got into the crowd and touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed of her disease. But she was also given spiritual life because Jesus saved her soul. And so we find that in that millennial kingdom, there is going to be no death. Both physical death and spiritual death are taken care of. And eventually, in the millennial kingdom, there will be no sin. Sin will be put down until finally sin is done away with. Well, now we come to the last of the miracles that Matthew records uh, for this purpose. And there's something here to be proved as well. The eighth miracle is the healing of two blind men. Jesus, as I said a moment ago, had just healed Jairus' daughter, just raised her from the dead. He just left his house. And when he left his, his house, there, there was this constant reminder of the terrible plight of the people. 
There was very much sickness and there was much despair. People had never met anyone like Jesus. People died in those days with, with no hope. They, they died in their diseases. They had no hope of recovery. But when Jesus came healing, you can well imagine the result of that. And we see the result of that as we read the Scriptures because no matter where he went, there were crowds that came to see the miracles, to see somebody that could do something that nobody else could do. But more importantly than that, than just seeing the miracles, were the ones who were there with the sicknesses, the ones who were actually subject to those miracles. And Jesus was so compassionate that he never refused anyone. Anybody who needed help could come to him. And Jesus waded out into the crowds. He mixed and mingled with the people. In that previous miracle, that woman that got into the crowd and thought, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And so she got close enough, and that happened to her. But you know what Jesus could have done? He could have preached that sermon on the mountain. He could have stayed up on the mountain after he preached the sermon. And he could have said, you know, there are lots of people that are down there that are sick, thousands and thousands of people that are sick. So the easy thing for me to do is to stay up on the mountain, and I'll just heal everybody from right here. Uh, just say the word and everybody will be healed. And he could have done that because he's God. He could have done that. In fact, we do find that in one miracle, he, he wasn't even present in the place where the sick person was. And that wasn't because he didn't want to go to his house, but because someone asked him, believing in faith, that he was actually able to heal people without even being present there. And so Jesus did that, and that proved his transcendence. It proved his omniscience over his creation. But Jesus' usual method was to wade out into the crowds, and they were all clamoring to be near him. And so when he left Jairus' house, he was followed by these two blind men that wanted to be healed. But we're going to talk about them this morning, and I want us to see the the marvelous purpose in their healing, because these, this, this healing of the blind men is recorded for a specific purpose, just like the others are. Now, I want to begin by noticing this, the common condition... The common condition is blindness. And I suppose if we could be transported back to the time of Jesus, that we would be amazed at how many blind people there were. If we were to pick out one condition, just one sickness among all uh, that Jesus healed people from, blindness would be number one. We find more blind people healed in Scripture than from any other disease. At least in the Gospel accounts, we find that more people were healed from blindness. So it was a very common disease. It was brought about by the conditions of the times. Uh, There was a hot, arid climate there. There was blowing sand, blistering sunlight. There were wars and there were accidents. And, of course, there were all kinds of infectious diseases. One of the interesting aspects of this is if you go over to John chapter 9 and you read there the story about the man who was born blind, And we talked about him before because his particular case is one of the most instructive that we find in Scripture. But you remember the story how this man in John chapter 9 was blind from his birth, and the disciples asked a very interesting question to Jesus. They asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And again, that is an interesting question for several reasons. But think for just a minute about his parents. What sin could they have committed that their son was born blind? Well, it's actually one that caused a great deal of blindness in those times. It was a form of gonorrhea, a sexually transmitted disease. 
And so when the disciples asked Jesus that question, they might have been referring to this. Did his mother commit the sin of adultery? And they thought maybe that that man was born blind because his mother was infected with gonorrhea. Now today, in our hospitals, that possibility is taken into consideration. Uh, A mother may not have any symptoms of this disease, but when the baby passes through the birth canal, these organisms can get into the baby's eyes and they cause blindness. And that's why all newborns today, when they're born, they put antibiotics antibiotic drops into their eyes in order to prevent blindness. So when the baby is born and they clean the baby up, they put the drops in the eyes, and that's why they look wet or why they uh, look like they have cream in their eyes. And that's the reason why we don't see too many children today that are born blind. But they didn't have those antibiotics in the time of Jesus, and so uh, they couldn't deal with sexually transmitted diseases, and so blindness was a very common condition. And they didn't have other kinds of drugs that would prevent blindness like we have today in older uh, children and in adults. So we notice here that these two blind men come and they're following Jesus, a common condition that people had. And another thing that you'll notice in the scripture, that blind people are often found in pairs. They're in groups or two of two or more. You often see blind people together. They cling to one another trying to make their way along. And you may remember that one time that Jesus told the Pharisees, you're like the blind leading the blind, and both of you are going to fall into the ditch. And that comes from the fact that blind people stuck together. Two blind people are often trying to make their way along and uh, trying to do what they needed to do, going about their business. Now, have you noticed something, though, about the various healings that we find here in these scriptures? Who are the people that follow Jesus around? Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, he didn't follow Jesus around. It wasn't until he had a desperate need that he couldn't solve, that his young daughter was dying. It wasn't until then that he approached Jesus. When he came to the end of his resources, that's when he went to seek Jesus. When people are doing fine, when there are no problems in their lives, when they think that everything is okay, they don't go looking for help. Those self-righteous Pharisees that you find in verse number 11, they never thought they sinned. And so they weren't prone to follow Jesus around except for the fact that they wanted to criticize him. They weren't following him because they believed that they needed any help. And you'll notice this today, that people begin to pray and people begin to seek out Jesus. They look for churches, they look for pastors, and they do that when they're in trouble, when they have a problem. And all the rest of the time, People ignore Jesus. So you always find Jesus surrounded by hurting people. It's the people who have problems. So you find him with blind people and crippled people and grieving people. They followed him because he's the only source of help. That's the only resource. Now I want you to notice secondly here the pleading confrontation of these two blind men. They're following Jesus and they're crying out to him and Jesus departed thence. Two blind men followed him crying. You ever wondered how these two men could follow Jesus? They're blind. How do they know where he is? One of the things that happens to blind people is that they develop their other senses. When they, when they get blind, they, they compensate that through acute hearing or sense of touch. That's usually heightened. And so these two men were listening very carefully. They heard Jesus as he came from the raising of Jairus' daughter. At first, 
They heard the weeping and the wailing. They heard all the mourners that were there. And then they heard silence because Jesus threw all the mourners out because he was going to raise her from the dead. And so they heard everybody talking about this, how Jesus had raised this young girl. People came rushing up to Jesus. They knew when he'd left the house, and so they just latched onto somebody that was following, and they took off after him. And we notice here in the Scriptures that the Bible says that they were crying. And the word actually originally means they were shrieking, they were screaming. It's almost like being out of your mind. They were following him. They're shrieking after him. It means speaking unintelligibly. So they kept following him. They kept crying to him. They kept pleading for him to stop. And you see what they were doing? They were very persistent about this. They must get to Jesus. And that's another characteristic of people that Jesus dealt with. He was always looking for the demonstration of faith. We can't imagine the numbers of people that were always following him. Jesus never had a moment's peace. Someone's always yelling at him. Someone's always grabbing at him, invading every minute of his time. And that's why you find Jesus trying to get away from the crowd sometimes. He was in a human body. It took a lot of fortitude, strength to be able to stand up to that day after day. Thousands of people following you around, touching you, yelling at you, screaming at you. And Jesus heard these men. They were pursuing him and they were yelling at him. And I suppose that there was something that they said. There was something in what they cried amongst all the shrieking and unintelligible things that they said. They made their presence known and there must have been something they said that was important to him. Now the disciples may have said something like this because there were so many people falling. Why don't you just shut those two guys up? Do what they want, just shut them up so they'll quit crying after us all the time. Well, there is something that stood out in their pleading. They had something very special to say and something that's worthy of our consideration. They cried after Jesus and asked for his help. And as they did, we find here thirdly the messianic connection. The messianic connection. And now we see the reason why that Matthew singles out two blind men and reports their healing. It's because they had made the messianic connection. Now, what is the purpose of Matthew again? It's to prove that Jesus is the Messiah King. So we look and we see, what do these two blind men say? And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So they had made the connection. Jesus is the one who is the heir to David's throne. And this is the first time in Matthew that anyone admits that Jesus is the Messiah King. Chapter 1 tells us, when it gives us the genealogy of Christ, that he came from David. The angel that appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary was going to have a baby called Joseph the son of David. And so that connection is made. But as yet, there is no one who has been healed who has made this connection or used that term. Now, these two men are physically blind, but they had some very keen insight. They may not have physical sight, but they sure did have some spiritual insight because they knew that Jesus was the heir to David's throne. He was the king who would sit on David's throne. And so two physically blind men are teaching those that are spiritually blind. When Jesus spoke the manifesto of the kingdom, these two guys recognized what he was saying. They recognize his authority because he is the son of David. Now, folks, that is very significant. 
Because at that time, there was nobody sitting on David's throne. In fact, for over 400 years, no one had sat on David's throne. So who has the right to assume that? Who has the right now to become the king of Israel? How are they going to pick out somebody to sit on David's throne? They couldn't, but they were still looking for it. They expected that the kingdom would be restored because God had already promised that. For thousands of years, he'd promised it. Let me show you something. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 for just a minute. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Bible tells us that David's throne is an everlasting throne. This is the story when David wanted to build the temple. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to him to tell him that he wouldn't be able to build it. And he said that Israel would have a kingdom, though, an everlasting kingdom where enemies would no longer bother them, and that kingdom would not be overcome. Now, we're going to see the promise that goes along with that. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Now, that's the prophet Nathan speaking to David, and he says, when you die... When you die, when you sleep with your fathers, I'm going to set up your seed after you. In other words, you're going to have a son which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. I think most of you recognize that the Scripture, first of all, refers to Solomon. Solomon's son, or David's son, Solomon, would become the king after him. And he was the one who would build that great, magnificent temple for Jehovah God. But Solomon didn't live forever. Any more than David lived forever. Solomon did not live forever. But God left a promise that the kingdom would live on. And in verse number 16, he says the throne is going to be established forever. Now, the Jews hoped for that. They thought about that. They knew that God was faithful to his promises. But after 400 years, there was no king. And you had to believe that even though they thought that it could happen, that the promise would be made or would be fulfilled that they had become apathetic about it. Oh, maybe he will bring in a kingdom, but it won't be in our lifetime. And so when the king came, they missed it. He came and he was born of a virgin. He pronounced the kingdom. He started healing people. He started doing all these wondrous miracles, and people still missed it. By far, the vast majority of them missed it. And so now you have two insignificant blind men, two men who are beggars, two men who are nobodies. And they're following Jesus, and they're shrieking after him, and they're calling out, Son of David, have mercy on us. You know, it reminds us of what Paul said. He said, not many wise, not many noble not many mightier call, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and weak things of the world to confound the mighty. So you have two old blind guys desperately hanging on to each other, and these men have been worked on by the Holy Spirit, and they see something that nobody else seems to know. They know who Jesus really is, and that's because God revealed it to him. And did you know that that's the way God works in salvation? Do you know how that you came to know Jesus? Is it because you're smart? 
Do you know Jesus because you pay more attention to the preacher when he preaches than other people do? Do you know about Jesus because you're just a cut above everybody else? Not on your life, because the Bible teaches that all of us are as blind as these two men were, spiritually as blind as they were, and we would never know who God is unless he revealed himself to us. And so these fellows cry out to him, Son of David, Son of David, time after time. And amongst all that shrieking and yelling of all these other unintelligible things, they're crying out with great insight, Son of David. And that's a common designation for the Messiah. Later in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus asked the unbelieving Pharisees a question. He said, it says this in Matthew 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Jesus said, who do you think Jesus Christ, the Christ is? Who do you think the Messiah is? And they said, he's the son of David. And so those hard-hearted Pharisees, they knew what the coming king would be. They knew who he must be. He must be the son of David. And these two blind men recognized it. Now, fourthly, I want you to see the hopeful expectation. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Now, there is further realization of who Jesus is, because if he is the king, if he truly is the son of David, if he is the long-promised Messiah, then he'll bear the marks of the Messiah. He'll have the characteristics of the king. And what is it that the Messiah will do? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us something particularly in relation to these two blind men. Isaiah chapter 35 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. When the messianic Kingdom comes, the eyes of blind people will be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness waters break out and streams in the desert. How many times do you think that these blind men would have thought of that scripture? If you were born blind, and if you'd grown up in a society where there was no hope for healing, And you'd heard the scriptures told over and over again, which kinds of scriptures would you gravitate towards? I can see these two fellows when they were young and their parents were telling them the stories that all Jewish little boys heard. They heard the stories of Moses and the Egyptians and how Moses took the people through the Red Sea. They heard stories about Joshua and Jericho, the stories about Samson, the story about David and Goliath. And they would hear about that great kingdom that used to be in Israel where they didn't have anybody ruling over them. No foreign power controlled them. And don't you think that a tender mother and father would tell two little blind boys about this? That God has promised that there is a new king coming, that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, blind people will be able to see again. What do you think these two men thought about all the time? Maybe the Messiah is coming. Maybe he's here. And then our blindness will be taken away from us. Everything is going to be okay. And so now after all these years, they hear the commotion. They hear the stories. they, they, They hear the crowds. They hear about people being healed by the thousands. And the verse comes ringing back to their ears. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened. And who could do such things unless it is the Messiah? So they go after him, and along the way, they cry out to him, have mercy on us. That's the character of the king. 
If he truly is the Messiah, he will have mercy on the blind. He will open the ears of the deaf. He will cause the crippled to walk. He will make the dumb to speak. He, there will be streams in the desert. It all will happen when the righteous king comes. Do you see now why Matthew includes these two guys? Why this miracle? Because there's power that's packed into those words. Son of David, have mercy on us. And did you know that the kind, compassionate king also deals with us in mercy? I want you to turn to the back of your Bible, uh, towards the back to the little letter that Paul wrote to Titus. This is in chapter 3 of Titus. Titus is a book where Paul is, a little letter that Paul's encouraging this man, Titus, in the faith. He's telling him about preaching sound doctrine and about standing up for the faith. He was telling him about order in the church. Then he reflects for just a moment about the grace of God in salvation, and he tells Titus to look for the coming of Christ. And chapter 2 is where we find that great verse about the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's looking for the kingdom, just like the two blind men are looking for the kingdom. Now, we notice here something in chapter 3 in what Paul tells Titus to teach. He says something here about mercy. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. In other words, you instruct Christians in this area. Tell them how to be good citizens of their country. Verse number two, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts, different kinds of lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, listen, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see what Paul is saying here? All of us were disobedient to God. All of us were sinners. All of us lived in malice. We all serve ourselves. There is nothing in us that commends us to God. But then you see what God does. While we are in that condition, while we have no righteousness of our own, God saves us. And why does he do it? Because he's merciful. According to his mercy, he saved us. And that's what these two fellows are looking for. If Jesus is the Messiah, he will have mercy. They were counting on that, and so they asked him for it. He knew they would not refuse them. They knew they would not refuse them mercy if he truly was the king. And folks, that's still true today. He still is merciful. Every time that his soul is saved, it's not because you're a good person. It's not because you deserve anything. It's because God shows mercy. Just a word about the conference that I attended. Uh, One of the speakers stood up and he says, don't complain about anything. I'm talking to all these preachers. You don't have a right to complain about anything. Just be thankful that you're not in hell right now because you deserve it. Now, when you hear that, when all the preachers hear that, everybody's kind of staring at the floor and saying, you know, I'm not so great after all, am I? And that's the humbling aspect of that. You have to realize who you are. We don't deserve anything from God. We do not deserve mercy. 
Now, fifthly, and I'm going to have to stop here, and and we'll take up some more next time, but the fifth part of this is the faith-filled realization. I'm going to bring you all the way up to the point of the miracle, but we're going to leave the performance of this for next time. Here is where we see what Jesus is after with these two guys. Verse 28, And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Those two blind men didn't stop in the street. They didn't let Jesus alone. They were persistent. And so here these guys go. They followed him right into the house. Jesus just looks like he's trying to get away, but they follow him into the house. Now, why didn't Jesus heal them in the street? Why didn't he take care of it right there? Why didn't he just heal them first time they asked? Well, here we're going to see that he tries out their faith. They admitted that he was the Messiah. They said he is the son of David. But is that all that Jesus wants from them? Did he want, to, want them to acknowledge that he was a political leader? I mean, is it good enough that they're being healed by a governmental figure? Jesus is looking for the admission of his deity also. Did this power to heal him, heal both these men, represent the power of God? Now, in verse number 34, uh, which is the subject of another message, uh, They recognized that there was something supernatural going on, but it wasn't the power of God, according to the Pharisees. They said he cast out devils by the prince of devils. So Jesus is bringing these two men to the admission that he is divine. He heals because he is the divine king of kings and lord of lords. Now, do you see their admittance here? He asks, believe ye that I am able to do this? Look how they respond. There's admission of divinity in the answer. They say unto him, Yea, Lord. And now where are we headed? We're headed more than just physical healing here. Now we're headed for the salvation of their souls. Remember, not everybody that Jesus healed was also given salvation. Jesus drew them into this conversation so they could express their belief in everything that that title meant. What is contained in this title, the son of David? Well, also there is that he is Lord of salvation. So he's not only going to heal them from their blindness, he's also going to save their souls and bring them into the eternal kingdom of God. What is it that Paul said? For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So they called him Lord. Now, we've already read ahead, so we know what's going to happen here. They're, they're going to be healed of their blindness. We, we already know that. And this is a, just a great story that illustrates salvation in Christ and the realization that every person must have in order for your soul to be saved. Two blind men came to Jesus. They have nothing to offer him. We don't have anything here about their religious lives. We don't find anything said about good works that they had done. There's nothing here at all. Jesus heals them because he has mercy. They they don't deserve to be healed. Out of all the blind people that were there, why do these two guys gain any recognition at all from Jesus? Because they realize the helplessness that only Jesus could help them. So they came in faith believing that if they would just ask him, they would recover their sight, he would recover the sight, and he would save their souls. They wouldn't have been there if they didn't have a problem. Nobody was there without problems. And just like all the people that Jesus helped, 
In every instance, there's someone who came to their point of desperation, realizing there is no hope without him. Now, here's where I want you to come today, to this realization. What is your point of desperation? And I'm going to tell you what your point of desperation is. You're on your way to hell. Without Jesus Christ, you're on your way to hell. The Bible says that you're going to die in your sins and you'll be in hell for all of eternity. You have to be delivered from hell. That's your desperation. And when you come to the realization of that, that you are a sinner, just like the Word of God says, Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Your point of desperation is when you come to the realization that unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save your soul from your sins, you will die and go to hell. And when you come to that realization, then you're ready to be saved. These two men realized who Jesus was. He's the only one who can help us. And we're not just talking about the physical sight. He's the only one who can save us from destruction. He is the Messiah King. Now, folks, here's your only hope. Realize it. You're desperate without Jesus, hopelessly lost in your sin, still blind, never able to see the kingdom of God. You can't see it without Jesus Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's telling you you are spiritually blind unless you have been regenerated by God. You must trust him. You must believe him. That's the point of the story. This is why... Matthew brings in two blind men, two particular blind men. It's for their salvation much more than for their healing. I hope you realize your point of desperation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the story that we've just read and how it illustrates so beautifully where we stand without Jesus Christ. We're blinded by this world. We're blinded by the God of this world, by Satan. We can't see you unless your Holy Spirit should open our eyes. Give us the faith that we need to trust in you. I I pray, Lord, that someone here today would come to this realization that the main point here, the central point, is that without Jesus Christ, we're hopelessly lost in our sins. He is the only one who can save us. Would you show that to someone today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.